1975 in Malaysia, the China-Laos Railway, and pardons in Myanmar. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Andreka Natsulagawa, and today is August 10, 2023. On today's show... And what's happening is basically the fundamental problem is that the winning parties are not being allowed to take office. Over the last two decades, Thai politics has been going in one direction. And that direction is that the royalist conservative establishment has faced serious challenges of change, of reform. That was Titinan Pongsudirak, who chatted with Alina Noor to discuss the continued fallout from the Thai elections in May. I'm really excited for that interview. We're so glad you get to join in as well. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Yume Lin in the studio. Yume is a research intern here at CSIS. Happy to be here, Andreka. Excited to be at CSIS and in DC. So you just moved here a couple months ago, and I wanted to ask, what would you say is one of your favorite parts about being here in DC? I'm honestly a big fan of the public transit system. Even though I know there's a lot of people who complain about it, I really think it's still a step up from LA where I was raised. You know, speaking of trains, let's chug along to Laos. There have been a lot of transportation developments between Laos and its neighbor to the north. Yes, key developments have been made on the Laos-China Railway, which currently stretches from Kunming in China's Yunnan province to Vientiane. The railway won't stop there, though. Beijing is looking to expand it to Thailand, Malaysia, Cambodia, and Myanmar, with a section between Bangkok and the Lao border projected for completion by 2028. Supporters claim that this would do wonders for Laos and mainland Southeast Asia economy, with the World Bank saying that the railway could bring up aggregate income by 21%. However, those who are more skeptical of these projects claim that Laos is only increasing its debt, which stood at 14.5 billion US dollars in 2021. Half of that belongs to China. And although the project remains popular among the Lao people, only time will tell if this is a blessing or a one-way ticket to a debt trap. Now, moving on to our next story from Laos, Chinese human rights lawyer Liu Suwei was arrested on Friday, July 28th, while on a train bound for Bangkok, Thailand. Liu Suwei was known for taking more controversial cases. He defended Tu Wensheng, a critic of Xi Jinping, as well as people who made liquor bottle labels that commemorated the Tiananmen Square massacre. He lost his license in 2021 after he represented a pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong who tried to escape to Taiwan. Subsequently, the lawyer had an exit ban imposed on him. Around 85 human rights groups called on the Lao government to stop a forced repatriation back to China and to release him immediately according to his international human rights obligations. The situation is still ongoing, with his whereabouts and repatriation status currently being unknown. Up next, we have a few quick updates on the situation in Myanmar. First, we want to note that the junta-led government recently pardoned Aung San Suu Kyi on 5 out of 19 of the offenses that she was convicted of, taking off 6 years from her 33-year jail term. According to Zha Min Tun, a junta spokesperson, this was part of an amnesty initiative that freed over 7,000 prisoners across Myanmar. This sweeping pardon included the country's ousted president, Win Min, who had a sentence reduced by four years. All this said, the government emphasized that Aung San Suu Kyi still remains under house arrest, much to the dismay of the international community. Kya Zha of the National Unity Government says that this was just a political trick aimed at relieving pressure. And this rings true, especially since the military recently extended the state of emergency for at least another six months. Some experts say that the extensions could continue through 2025, when the election results from 2020 officially expire. While there's quite a bit of activity in mainland Southeast Asia, 
the maritime region has a lot going on as well, especially in Malaysia, which is hosting state elections this weekend. It really is the first big test for the coalition government that Prime Minister Anwar is heading up. There's talk about a green wave from the Malaysian Islamic Party, PAS, potentially pushing back on Anwar's Pakatan Harapan coalition. Yes, and the implication seems to be quite far-reaching. We're looking at this as a larger test of how people see the future of Malaysia, whether it's a multicultural society, as emphasized by Anwar and his allies, or whether those sorts of pluralistic conceptions are, quote, against the constitution, as suggested by former Prime Minister Mahathir in a recent statement. These cultural clashes have extended beyond politics and into pop culture. Earlier this summer, there was backlash at Coldplay performing in Malaysia given their support of the LGBTQ community. A member of PAS called for the concert scheduled for November to be canceled. And in late July, British band The 1975 was performing at the Good Vibes Festival when lead singer Matt Healy kissed a bandmate on stage, leading to the cancellation of the festival overall. The music festival organizers sued the 1975 for damages incurred and have now demanded about two million pounds in damages, or about 2.6 million U.S. dollars. While Healy's actions were theoretically intended as a statement against Malaysia's anti-LGBTQ legislation, many members of the LGBTQ community in Malaysia were angered by the event, fearing that Healy's action could put the LGBTQ community under further scrutiny, especially as elections loom closer. Others have criticized Healy for forcing the cancellation of the festival, which may make it more difficult for foreign or even local artists to perform in the future. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Yume, for stopping by. Up next, Alina's interview with Titinan Pongsudirak. So stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners. This week... Unfortunately, it's just me running solo. Greg Poling is out. But given that it's election season in the region at large, with a number of countries either having elections, just having had elections, or coming up to elections, we're focused on one particular country right now that has had its elections, but the outcome is still kind of undetermined, and that is Thailand. And to unpack all the confusion and complexity that's going on with the political developments there, we have Professor Titinan Pong Sudirak, who is Professor of Political Science at Chulalongkorn University and Senior Fellow of the Institute of Security and International Studies in Thailand. Welcome, Dr. Titinan. It's good to be with you. Um, hello, everyone. So, a lot has been happening since Thailand had its election in May. As I mentioned, we still don't know the final outcome, but it's been a good few months now. Can you maybe just clarify for us and, and summarize what's been going on in these last few months since the middle of May when elections took place? We've had elections on May 14th, as uh, many people know, and so far, more than two and a half months, we still do not have a new government. And what's happening is basically the fundamental problem is that the winning parties are not being allowed to take office. And the winning parties are the Move Forward Party. This is a, a brand new party. It became the, the largest winning party, contrary to expectations. It won the election, essentially. And then you have the, the Purtai Party. The Purtai Party is aligned to Thaksin Shinawat. And we know about Thaksin Shinawat. He was a prime minister two decades ago. And uh, he was ousted in a military coup in 2006. 
he regrouped, and then his sister took over. Eventually, she also was ousted uh, via military overthrow in 2014. Uh, so these two parties combined for more than 60% of the votes, but they are not uh, allowed to take office because the constitution from the 2014 coup is designed to enable the military and the conservative establishment to supervise, to call the shots in Thai politics by a constitutional configuration, giving the appointed Senate the authority to elect prime minister in parliament. So basically, it sounds convoluted and murky, but in, in fact, uh, it's pretty clear on the one hand. I mean, you have, over the last two decades, Thai politics has been going in one direction. And the direction is that the royalist conservative establishment has faced serious challenges of change, of reform, first represented and embodied in the Thaksin Shinawat and his political party machine. Thaksin, through Thairak Thai Party, won the election outright in 2001 and then a massive landslide in 2005 with 75% of parliament. And he became a juggernaut. And also, he became an existential threat to the conservative royalist establishment. They overthrew him, led by street protests, the yellow shirts, and then the military coup. And then they also dissolved his party. Tyrak Tai was dissolved, and his leaders were banned from politics for five years. And then, you know, they, they came back under a new party called People's Power Party, Palang Prashashon Party. And they also won the election despite the, the coup, despite a new constitution. And then that party again faced a yellow shirt protest in 2008. And this time we saw something different, which was not a military coup, but a judicial coup, judicial dissolution of the People's Power Party in December 2008. Many people will remember that Thailand's international airport was closed for eight days because of the yellow clad protesters. This enabled the dissolution of People's Power Party in December 2008, enabled the military to work with the Democrat Party and form an opposing government of the conservative establishment. And that led to the yellow, the, the red shirt protests. The red shirts were people who were disenfranchised by the dissolutions of the Thaksin parties. So, you know, basically that's the water and the bridge. And then eventually in 2011, Jing Lak Thaksin's sister, came to lead the party and won the election again outright by an overall majority in the July 2011 election. She became prime minister, defense minister, first female doing so in Thai politics. And then she also then faced another yellow shirt protest that led to the military coup in 2014. So if you look back, you know, it's been in this one direction, right? The Taksin and Shinawat uh, aligned political parties, political associates, uh, politicians, big business. And Thaksin was hounded by corruption allegations. He had certainly conflicts of interest. But nevertheless, he became a challenge to the way that things have been in Thailand, to the traditional institutions, to the established centers of power around the military, the monarchy, the judiciary, the bureaucracy. And they put him down time and again. And after Ying Lak's overthrow, we had a hard military coup and a military government for five years under the lead coup maker, General Prayut Janosha. 
Prayut Janosha and his government saw to it that the new constitution of 2017 was even more conservative, was even more hardline. It gave the military an appointed Senate and uh, empowered these uh, agencies to keep politics in check. And, and that's why we have uh, the problem we have today. You know, Prayut led the military government for five years and another four years following the 2019 election. The 2019 election, again, saw the Taksin Aligned Party, Thai Party, the third party now, won the elections as the largest winning, but was not allowed to form a government. So the second largest winning was Prayut's party, Palang Pasharat Party, formed the government, and General Prayut was able to, to continue as prime minister for four more years, so nine years altogether. And, you know, it been the performance has been lackluster, dismal, and Thailand along the way over the last nine years has sunk uh, the lowest that I've seen in my lifetime. Thailand's international standing is at its lowest. Thailand's economy is seeing signs of uh, stagnation and the country is still uh, divided. So, you know, we saw at that time in 2019 a rise of a new party, the Future Forward Party, basically supported by a lot of young people, people in their 20s, 30s, some 40s. But these people grew up over the last two decades, and they saw how Thailand has been squandered by the generals, by the two coups, by the multiple judicial interventions. And they they said, you know, that was enough. They, they had to do something in order to to take the country back, to, ta- to retake Thailand, because that's their future. So they formed this Future Forward Party, and it, it surprisingly came in third, as the third largest winning party in 2019. And its main agenda was to reform the traditional institutions, to call for reforms of the monarchy, of the military, of the judiciary, the bureaucracy, and the Thai economy and society overall, in order to get Thailand moving again. As a result of these uh, reform demands, the Future Forward Party was dissolved, was also disbanded in February 2020, igniting a year-long protest movement by young people across campuses, by young students. And uh, these protests also were put down by water cannons, rubber bullets, legal prosecution, and the Future Forward Dissolution led to the Move Forward creation establishment, basically. This is the party now that has won the election. So, you know, this is a lot of water under the bridge. A lot has gone on in the last two decades, but it's in the same direction. And the basically, we're seeing the, the attempted restoration and uh, resurgence of the old guard of the old-style establishment around the monarchy, the military, bureaucracy, judiciary, and their resurgence. But I think that um, they've had to to put up a very high price for the current ongoing distortion and subversion of the people's vote. So that's where we are. That's why there has been no new government, despite a very clear result, because the Senate has refused to go along with the popular will and endorse the winning parties. In fact, the conservative royalist establishment and the judiciary have hobbled the move forward party by 
laying a bunch of charges against his leader, Pita Limjalan Rat, and refusing to allow him to be prime minister through the Senate. Senate refused to vote for him. You know, the, the lower house is very clear. Move forward is the largest party, 151. Kuatai is second largest, 141 out of 500. And they form an alliance with other smaller parties for 312 MPs out of 500. But because the vote for the prime minister is bicameral, including the appointed Senate, uh, they need uh, 376. So they don't have enough votes from the senators uh, who were appointed by the military junta after the 2014 coup. So that, that's where we are. We are in a tense, jockeying, fluid period of government formation. It's very clear now that the move forward would not be allowed a role in government. It has been denied. Parliamentary speakership has been denied. The premiership under Peter because he's been charged by the Constitutional Court for owning media media shares. And then uh, it also will be denied a role in, in the coalition government. Most likely, we will see a Purtai-led government. But this Friday, uh, August 4th, there will be another vote in parliament to see who gets to be prime minister, and we will know more on that day. Right. So a lot of context that you've provided for us. And of course, like many ironies, as you've alluded to, and you yourself have written about some of these ironies, particularly involving Taksin Shinawaj, that he has been put down so often and uh, so much by the system. And now, ironically, he is kind of the kingmaker. So what are your thoughts on where you think the situation in Thailand might end up? What kind of government are we going to get? Are we going to get a Shinawat in power again? Because his, his daughter is now becoming increasingly prominent, isn't she? You know, in this election, uh, Taksin Shinawat lost an election for the first time in, in Thai politics since he created his uh, orig- original Thai Rak Thai party back in 1998. So it's a big shock to, to many, including the tax inside that the Move Forward Party won this election, not by an, an overall majority, but, you know, as a largest winning party. And therefore, Taksin, you know, there have been many ironies here, but the most salient to me is that Taksin, 20 years ago, was viewed by the establishment as a threat, as the existential threat and challenge. But now he's viewed as, a, as an ally by the establishment, the establishment wants to use him to protect against the move forward uh, agenda, reform agenda. So the most likely government we will have probably will have to be will be led by Pertai. It is it is difficult to foresee a, a minority government led by the pro-military parties. You know, the pro-military parties uh, lost big time in this election. The Palang Pasharat Party. It won, uh, I think, won, won 16. Now it's down to 40, just 40 MPs. The United Thai Nation, another pro-military party, won just 36. So, you know, combined, and they, they have barely just half of the move forward strength in parliament. So without Pua Thai, it's very hard for the pro-military parties to concoct and come up with a coalition government. So most likely we'll see a Pua Thai-led coalition government a kind of a grand coalition basically excluding Move Forward. And there's a chance that Move Forward will be dissolved altogether because the Move Forward agenda is seen as a big danger by the establishment because it wants to reform the monarchy. The 
likely coalition governments under poor Thailand, you know, including or the other parties, including the pro-military parties, will still be better than the government we've had over the last nine years under General Prayut. This has been the most abysmal government Thailand has had. You know, General Prayut just lacked the, uh, the, the wherewithal, the vision, the, the, the training, the, the knowledge, the strategic thinking to lead Thailand. Uh, so this poor Thailand government would not be, um, you know, fully democratic, so to speak, because the ideal democratic government in Thailand would be a move forward and a poor Thai together in a coalition government. But now that they have kind of split up and, and move forward as being marginalized and, and isolated systematically, poor Thai is turning the other way, switching side. And we will have to see if poor Thai will put forward is candidate. I mean, you mentioned Pat Hong Tan Chinawat, Thaksin's uh, youngest daughter. She's 37. She is seen as uh, inexperienced still, even though she has found some traction with uh, the base of Pur Thai. I think that uh, she will bide her time and they will propose the other candidate. The other main candidate is Seta Tuisin, who is a property uh, tycoon. He is uh, a confidant of Yinglak. He, he knows Thaksin. And that's, that's the Pur Thai main candidate. So we will see this Friday if he gets voted in. If he is voted in as prime minister, if he wins enough Senate support, then we have a new prime minister. And then after that, there'll be a government formation and then Thailand can move forward again. I think that there's some moves now to stymie from the Senate, even his candidacy. So um, I think that the establishment would like some kind of minority government that excludes both Thai and move forward. But it's a very high cost and they don't have enough numbers. Or it'll be very difficult. So if your projection comes uh, true, what does Thai domestic and foreign policy look like under newly formed government? Because as you mentioned, the Move Forward Party was seen as inspirational for a lot of young Thais in particular. But it seems that Thai society, like many other societies in the world, remains uh, deeply divided. And so if Move Forward is completely out of the picture, what does that look like for Thais themselves? Well, the division and polarization are clear and, you know, they are not confined to Thailand. But I think that division is shifting. Basically, the vote we, we had on May 14th was a clear call, a popular will for change. Now, how much change, you know, is debatable, but it was a clear vote for change because both Thai and Move Forward are not seen as establishment parties. They're not pro-military. They're both anti-coup. And the fact that both of them came up with more than, you know, up almost two-thirds of the electorate, it suggests that the division is shifting and that the conservative royalist minority is dwindling, dwindling, reducing in numbers. But nevertheless, they're still very powerful. They're backed up by the military, by the judiciary. They have uh, the force of arms. They have the law, the legal uh, persecution. So I think this will make a lot of people unhappy because it's not the way that the vote was intended. However, if Thai leads the coalition government, it will still have some mandate. Thai lost to move forward by but by a small margin. So as long as Thai is in government with other parties, including the pro-military parties, 
they could claim some legitimacy, not the ideal kind of democratic outcome, but some political legitimacy because they were voted in by more than 10 million people, ties, and they won previous elections. They have experience in government. And I think that it will be a lot qualitatively, fundamentally, a lot better than the previous Bayut government on economic growth uh, strategies, but also on uh, foreign policy. I mean, Thai foreign policy and uh, international standing has never been so low. Thailand has made uh, you know bad moves uh, on Myanmar policy. Thailand basically has forfeited its uh, regional role in ASEAN, its international role to, uh, in a broader sense. And, you know, it's just not a not a player to to be taken seriously and to be reckoned with. You can see that, you know, Thailand is not ignored uh, just by the sheer the size of it, the location, its diplomatic history. It's got a lot going for it. But in terms of being a player to be uh, to make a difference, you know, in the wider groupings and uh, regional schemes from the, the Indo-Pacific, you know, U.S., and the um, the U.S.-China rivalry competition, the ASEAN uh, mix, Myanmar policy on the trade, CPTPP, Thailand missed that. CEP is more, you know, kind of a lower standard. And then the, I think Thailand is trying to get on the IPEF if it comes into being. But, you know, FTAs have been uh, stalled. So you look around, Thailand is just has diminished qualitatively, visibly. So a new government led by Pur Thai, I think, uh, will still be a, a massive improvement on what we've seen over the last nine years. There'll be some people in Thailand who are not happy with the domestic outcome because a lot of, you know, more than 14 million people out of 39 million voted for Move Forward. If Move Forward is not dissolved and is relegated to the opposition benches, then I think that uh, it will be manageable. But if Move Forward is dissolved, disbanded, There'll be a lot of protests. I mean, there's some protests now, but I think that they, they will be manageable because move forward in opposition will still be able to pursue some of its reform agenda. But if it's dissolved, then, you know, that's another systematic, uh, you know, basically denial of the people's voices. And we've seen this so many times, right? How many times will it take? So I think that people will, will rise up and I think there'll be a lot of protests. It'll be very tense because if Pertai leads the government, and move forward is dissolved and disbanded and its leaders are banned again, you know, this, this would be very naked that it comes from the establishment, that this is a distortion, manipulation, systematic denial of the people's uh, will, and uh, it will lead to a lot of, well, it will be disenfranchisement, and the disenfranchisement will lead to a lot of protests. And, you know, it will be tense because Pertai will have to uh, lead uh, in the suppression, in the management of those protests. Yeah, I remember being in Bangkok during um, the Red Shirt protests. At, I have to say, I, I never felt unsafe because fortunately or unfortunately, I think Thailand, as you pointed out, has had a long history of political changes and protests. And I remember the, the scene being very almost uh, festive-like. Um, so, But I wanted to ask you about uh, U.S.-Thai relations and particularly the alliance relationship. Some of you listeners might remember that when we focused on the Thai elections just after the actual date of the election, or actually we may have recorded a few days before the election, I think there was perhaps a lot more optimism about the, the 
outcome of the elections as well as where the move forward party would be in the larger scheme of things. But it seems that that optimism has since diminished. And so for Thai watchers in Washington, D.C., what would your assessment of the alliance relationship be depending on the outcome at the end of this week? The move forward party made a lot of comments, a lot of noise about foreign policy. Move forward party leader Pitai is probably the most foreign policy trained and inclined among the leaders we've seen in Thailand. He has spoken about Myanmar policy, ASEAN, US China. Had moved forward taken office, we would have seen we would have seen a a strategic reorientation in the Thai posture towards the US China conflict, you know, over the last decade. And really since the military took over uh, in 2006 and again 2014, Thailand has inched closer to China just by the sheer necessity of having superpower support from an autocratic regime. And on the other side, you know, Thailand has had a, a lot of friction with the U.S. Back in 2014-15, the Obama administration imposed some sanctions on Thailand. You know, I think that was a rock bottom for Thai-U.S. alliance. Uh, back at the the tail end, uh, the last couple of years of the Obama administration, when Trump came in, it shifted because Trump was not for democracy and human rights and elections and constitution. He was more focused on, on China, on the FOIP. And he even had General Payut visiting the White House in October 2018. So, you know, it was remarkable to have a military government leader, the, the, the lead coup maker, visiting the White House during the Trump administration. But then the, after that, the Biden administration, I think, has has continued some of the, the Trump policies uh, in Southeast Asia, but at the same time, you know, taken over some of the Obama legacy as well. So I think that Biden is a combination synthesis of Obama and Trump. And alliance relations between U.S. and Washington and Bangkok have been steady. It could and should be a lot better in terms of... Uh, you know, there's a lot of mill-mill cooperation between the, the military to military. There's a lot of exchange programs, a lot of uh, training, and Cobra Go being the the the, the, the crowning uh, success of it. But on the ground, between civil society, between governments, I think Biden administration is keeping its eye on Thailand. But you know, with the change of government, I think there will be a qualitative shift. Even a pure Thai-led government will will rebalance. Thailand in the regional and wider mix, and especially between the U.S. and China. On the other hand, bear in mind that if we turn out to be to have a more autocratic outcome of any kind, then you know the Thailand posture and position will be more inclined towards Beijing, just by definition, by the sheer necessity of the autocratic uh, necessity and the inferiority complex of having an autocratic government at home and therefore being alienated with Western democracies. Well, sounds like a lot will depend on the outcome of the next few days. And even then, who knows? It's always a surprise in politics. We might not have a final determinate outcome. 
But that's all the time we have for, unfortunately. So um, stay tuned for more. Thanks, as always, for your insights, uh, Professor Titinan. I know you've been writing a lot on this, so listeners should stay tuned to follow more of Titinan's writings and comments. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any questions, comments, or feedback at scaradio at csas.org. And we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer. Our interns are Yume Lin and Ramil Mercado. My name is Andreka Nasaligawa. And I'm Yumei Lin. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.